I think the individual candidates are definitely focused on winning. I think as a party, they're still trying to figure out what they're about. If I say, if someone says, I'm a North Carolina Democrat, what does that mean? They need to, they need to define that. On this episode of the Politics Podcast, one Mecklenburg County progressive who is hardly impressed with the efforts from North Carolina's Democratic Party. Hi, I'm Jeff. This is the Politics Podcast from WUNC. Leslie Mack is a self-described rabble-rouser from Brooklyn. At a cocktail party, she's bound to describe herself as a consultant, strategist, or organizer, among other titles. Leslie arrived here six years ago, having previously lived all over the country. And we had been in Philadelphia for about 10 years before our very short stint in Michigan. And we were looking for some place to move. We knew Michigan was not it for a l- number of reasons, um, including that it's awful there for black people. And um, when we started looking, we noticed we had some friends here in Charlotte. We definitely wanted to move to the South. You know, I would say for my for my work, a political scene that is rapidly shifting and really exciting to, to be here for. So, yeah. I, I don't want to forget to follow up on that. Michigan is awful for black people. I'm no disrespect. I'm not that interested in Michigan. You fill in the blank for me. If Michigan is awful there for black people, how is North Carolina there for black Mm. people from your perspective? North Carolina is rooted in black community. And the same can't be said of Michigan. I was really out of tune with how being inconspicuously black would feel. And that's really what Charlotte has gifted to me is um, my anxiety level is lower. My um, ability to move without general fear um, is significantly lowered. And uh, I don't think I've, this is a running joke of my husband. I don't think I've been in a single establishment, business, restaurant, event uh, where I was the only black person there. Briefly, please describe your political ideology for for us, for the listeners. Mm. Well, I I don't like any of the labels that are out there right now because I just feel like they've been um, so bastardized and, uh, you know, kind of drained of all meaning. Um, I am a Democrat by political affiliation, meaning that's where I vote in my primaries just early last week before I left town. Um... I consider myself a progressive on most issues, um, but ultimately I am honestly just a 40-something black woman who has lived a life and has uh, a unique perspective on how we can create lasting change in this country, and I've decided to put my efforts into that particular endeavor. Give me two or three of the issues that matter most to you, political issues. Absolutely. Uh, Voting rights and suppression, top of my list. Bodily autonomy, uh, abortion access. And the third is obviously um, economic-based, but it's multifaceted because we need to, in that context, talk about education access, and we also need to talk about um, the, the wage and wealth gap. So those are my top three. So you voted early. This was a midterm that saw not record turnout per se, but really strong turnout, the strongest midterm primary turnout that North Carolina has seen in 20 years. And I'm interested, 
I don't know, maybe a two or 3,000 foot view as we kind of lower into it. After you put that ballot in the machine and you walked back out to your car, I'm presuming you walked out to a car, uh, you felt great? You felt energized? You felt frustrated? What, what did you feel after you voted early? Um, I felt that I had checked my box off for that for this primary. I I didn't have a lot of personal feelings, but what I will say was giving me a lot of hope was there were so many first-time black voters at the poll that I went to, and they were taking f- selfies with their parents, and um, I-, I was really moved by that, you know, more than whatever I did in the booth, which is whatever it is, but I was really buoyed by just seeing, and I went um, because I had gotten COVID and then a bunch of stuff happened, so I literally was there the last day of early voting on Saturday, and so I was like, I wonder... Are people still voting? Yes, they were. And it was really just great to see so many young people, um, you know, involved and excited and um, engaged as well. Involved, excited, engaged. Is that how you're viewing things right now as a black woman within the the Democratic Party? And I'm using a wide uh, framing here. I would pull the excited back for sure. Engaged, definitely. I definitely wouldn't consider myself excited. I have very specific hopes that I think are very val- you know, valid here in North Carolina in our state. Um, I don't have as much of that same feeling about uh, the nation as a whole at the federal level and definitely not um, in some key other states. I think part of the challenge for me is, is I tend to not like to do too much political work in the state that I'm in because it can make it really hard for me to maneuver as a voter um, and kind of hamper me in some ways. So uh, generally speaking, if I get asked to work on a campaign in in the state I live in, I usually just say no and refer to somebody else. So most of the work I'm doing right now are in other states um, outside of North Carolina because of that. I really value my autonomy as a voter and I've I've been on the other side of that where I was working on campaigns in the state I lived in and it made it impossible for me to talk about just about any race, um, which for me is just, I can't, it's untenable for me in, in that context. Yeah. Yeah. You and I spoke on the phone Wednesday morning, if memory serves. You and I spoke on the phone the morning after the primary. And I would have described you in that moment as uh, less than plussed, less than thrilled with the outreach efforts of the North Carolina Democratic Party. Tell me if that's true and then unpack it for for me, for us, and and tell us why. Yeah, I mean, as I said, you know, I'm a consistent uh, Democratic voter in my county. I got, I think, one touch uh, from a single candidate prior to me voting. And it's the one candidate I mentioned Lee earlier that I'm in pretty good contact with. I'm on the her mailing list, etc. I got nothing from the state level party. I don't even get a, here's who we think you should vote for, even if I don't agree with them. I just felt as though it was very, if this is supposed to be our dry run for November, we are in big trouble is what I really want to say. Um, because we can look at the numbers and see. Um, on election day itself, we had across um, North Carolina, uh, just shy of 300,000 votes cast, and the de- and the Republicans had over 400,000 votes cast on election day. So now we're talking about day of election day turnout being lackluster and a deficit that nobody will be able to overcome in, in November. So a lackluster effort, from your perspective, 
from Democrats, Democratic infrastructure and getting votes out here in the primary. Why? Why did that happen? Why weren't there more touches, as you call them, for, for you as a prospective voter? I, I mean, this is definitely a question for the party. I have some theories. I think one, obviously, we're still in the midst of, um, you know, dealing with the pandemic, although don't tell anybody here that because I heard it's over. <laughs> um, I think one, obviously, that's hampering the amount of like events folks are hosting where I know, especially for the Dems, a lot of times some of the direct touches come at like community barbecues and things like that, which were not as prevalent this spring as they were prior But in addition to that, I think that overall what I've seen is a a deep investment in television ads statewide, uh, a lack of drill down to connect directly with grassroots organizations that can be our best messengers for our candidates on the ground. Where Where is that collateral material? Where is the thing that comes to me that says, hey, here's the issues here are, the, here are these candidates. Here's their stance on these things. Here's how they voted on these things. Here's what they've said about these things. That's data that should be easily accessible by any voter. And it just isn't. Some of this is about demystifying politics for the average person and not feeling like all they can do is go into a box and check one color or another. Our people are looking for a much more nuanced, detailed engagement with politics right now. Um, And they're very much wanting to hear about issues specifically, not just rhetoric or vibes, as I like to call them. Okay, so if that's part of the the why and you're hinting at the uh, ideally or realistically what next, what needs to happen in the next five months and who needs to do it? in order for there to be not lackluster turnout from progressives and Democrats come come fall? One, I think they need to start now. So this, uh, you know, ninth uh, inning, bottom of the ninth inning spending on marginalized community outreach is just trash and doesn't work, um, especially because the next day then those same communities get blamed for lackluster turnout when no investment was made into actually helping them turn out. So that's the first thing. The second thing I think is they need to really get creative on meeting people where they are. Where are the barbershop tours? Where are the beauty salon stops? Where are, um, you know, the events where our people are already congregating? They're already discussing things that are important to them as a community. And what is the strategy to ensure that we reach those people? Because politics is well beyond just the press, well beyond just social media. This is personal. Um, And especially in a state like North Carolina, where our voting rights are um, precariously protected, but can at any moment shift. I tell this story all the time. I was working in Michigan, this is before I lived there, um, with a community um, just doing some organizer support. They've been having some issues and wanted to talk about how they could organize. So we started talking, we're having a conversation, and, you know, somebody said something to the effect of... um, you know, we need people like you because we don't know how to talk about policy. And that's all that people want to talk about is policy. And I I just asked the room a really simple question. I said, well, what do you guys want for your community? What's important to you? And this like little girl in the back, she might have been nine. She raised her hand and I said, yeah, 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 you come, come up here. Come to the mic. 
she comes up and she said, I just really want the street lights to be on. And I said, she's talking in policy and you're not hearing her. You know what you need. You know what um, you you know what your uh, community needs. You know what you need to get there. The question is not, do you speak policy? The question is, are we ensuring that the way you deliver your message and who you're getting it to are the folks that could actually create change? Um, I think that, again, this is just one more place where, you know, I know in the last five years there's been such an influx of folks that would lean Democrat moving to this state and there hasn't even been a campaign around that. A very simple one to say, hey, we know you're new here. Let's talk. Do you know, what do you know about North Carolina politics? Because they won't know anything. We, and we have no, as a party, we, there's no concerted effort to ensure new folks to the state are welcomed into the party, are focused on it all. This is how we actually can change um, North Carolina politics for, for the long haul. We can look at a state like Georgia, which I know people love to point to and be like, oh, they went blue. We could go blue too. Yeah, great, great, great. Here's the thing about Georgia. Organizers on the ground in Georgia spent 10 years building a base of membership. And I don't mean membership, meaning like I just give you 10 bucks and now I'm a member. I mean, you know, members across the state that when they say jump, all 20,000 of those people hop up from whatever they're doing and get to work. That's the type of deep relational organizing that needs to happen in North Carolina. And we have a real opportunity, as I said, with both the Democrat, the demographic shifts in the state in so many pockets, not just Mecklenburg County. We see it in Asheville. We're seeing it in Winston-Salem. We're seeing it in Raleigh, Durham. It's happening all over the state. And we are losing ground on ensuring that those folks are aware of what's happening here and uh, what candidates can support the things that are important to them. I want you to push back on this data point if, if, if it's not fair, if I'm oversimplifying it. But I do think an important or relevant point of context as it pertains to Georgia is that North Carolina's black population is about 22, 23 percent of the state. And at Georgia, uh, in Georgia, I believe it's north of 30. It is it is significantly higher or, or notably higher. And that is, I think, a, I think it's a, a notable factor. Is that a fair classification from your from your seat? Fair, yes, but that's why I mentioned the changing demographics because I don't mean them to be just um, racial demographics changing. What we're watching is ideological demographics changing as well. Uh, when we look at the four or five states that have the most people moving here, we're talking about Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, and I want to say Massachusetts or something like that. These are bastions of democratic power, right? Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's not just about a racial demographic shift. What we're experiencing here is an ideological shift um, in demographics here in North Carolina. And we're not tapping into that potential the way we should be. Is the North Carolina Democratic Party most focused on winning or is it more focused on something else from your estimation? I think the individual candidates are definitely focused on winning. I think as a party, if I'm being perfectly honest, from my perspective as a, um, as a strategist, they're still trying to figure out what they're about. I do not get the feeling that I know, even after multiple meetings and all of the emails and the newsletters and everything, that I know if I say, if someone says, I'm a North Carolina Democrat, what does that mean? They need to, they need to define that. 
I want to hammer down because I think this is fascinating. Does that definition need to come from Roy Cooper or Sherry Beasley or Dan Blue? Does it need to come from from grassroots organizers? Does it need to come from municipal, uh, local elected officials? Who, who needs to define it? I think that's a multifaceted question because the true definition of a political party is not one faceted. Um, it's made up of a lot of different prismatic um, and shifting pieces of folks. And so all of those people need to make up what the Democratic Party is. But if we're talking about North Carolina Dems and what that means, I do think it's incumbent on the party to have a strong, direct, easy to understand messaging about what they are, what they're about, what they intend to accomplish, and who they want to invite into this work with them, um, and defining what the work means to them. Um, so for that's their work. I think that's very critical. I also I want to ask you about monoliths in in politics, and I think there are various monoliths. There's there's the rural white. There's the college educated. Uh, but I, I want to focus on you, and we, and we can certainly touch on those, but I want to ask you about um, the black woman, because the black woman in American politics for the last 50 years has been as reliable a Democratic voter as any group group of people. And I want to unpack it a little bit, and perhaps to, to, to center the question, the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate is Sherry Beasley. It is the first time that a black woman has ever been nominated for U.S. Senate in this state. And I'm interested to hear from you how you would like to see her and her campaign and the Democratic apparatus perhaps take a step, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step past simple messaging, to be a little bit more nuanced in, in meeting various black women. Because, spoiler alert here, while it might be treated as a monolith, there's... Why the same? It's amazing. Go, 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 you, you take it from here. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I think, one, obviously, yes, we are not a monolith. I, I will speak first to the, the point about black women being the most you know consistent and reliable uh, voters um, for Democrats. It, it's a very simple answer to why that is. Um, you know, we are the canaries in the coal mine in this country. And so for so many of us, we are often, um, I like to say, forward casting what it looks like five years from now, 10 years from now, if we're on the trajectory that we are on right now. So we sort of measure our decisions based on that so often. Um, and so we're voting for our survival, for the survival of our communities, for the survival of our children, for the survival of future generations. And more importantly, in most cases, we're voting to decide on who our opponent's gonna be. And this is, I say, talk about this all the time as an organizer, this is a crucial reason why I ask people to vote. I know many people are like, voting sucks and that, that. I'm not, I'm not a vote or die type of person, but I will say, it's a rare opportunity that we get to actually decide who is going to be our opposition moving forward. And so for me as an organizer, that's where I look at um, where there's some nuanced messaging and some slightly targeted uh, messaging that could be put forth towards different pieces of the constellation of black women. Because many of us are disenfranchised right now. We're angry, we're upset, we're um, hurt. We are burnt out. Um, I'll be honest, like we feel like we we threw everything we had at the wall in 2020. Y'all said you needed us and we put every 
cape we had, excuse, can I swear? Sorry. We put every cape we had on and we hopped in and we rode all the way to, um, through the Georgia runoff. And to be asked to even think about that level of lift just two years later, it's unconscionable considering most of that work was not funded by the the Democratic Party at all. This was all work outside of the establishment. So I, I think that here in North Carolina for Sherry Beasley's campaign, I mean, I would love to see her, um, you know, interacting at some of these, um, you know, amazing Black-centered um, uh, community events that we have. There's like Black Tr Food Truck Friday. We have Black Restaurant Week coming up. I mean, there in, in Charlotte and Mecklenburg County and across the state, there's no shortage of ways to outreach and talk with um, Black voters. I also think doing innovative things is really interesting to me. Um, what does it look like to engage with um, faith communities in a different way? What does it look like to talk about reproductive um health and reproductive justice through a black feminist lens, depending on the audience that you're talking to. So now I'm going to play, I don't know, cynic, devil's advocate. I'm going to be the privileged white guy on the microphone or I mean, not even that. I mean, I am the privileged white guy on the microphone, but I'm going to note and remind you, you know this. Uh, and I've said this on the podcast recently, and I think that our listeners are probably going to get a little bit sick of me saying it in the next five months. But it is to me such a remarkable fact it bears worth mentioning again and again. The list of black female U.S. senators in the history of our country is Carol Mosley Braun and Kamala Harris. That's the end of the list, period. Okay. And those two women came from Illinois and California, places that are far more progressive than North Carolina. Do you really believe that North Carolina is, is ready and in a position to elect a black woman to the United States Senate? Hmm. <clears throat> in a position? Absolutely. Ready? That's a different question. I think Justice Beasley's done a really good job of, during this primary so far, really writing the line of, you know, focusing on her um, accomplishments, especially as a judge and as a prosecutor, um, which I think is important. And it's not reaching the base that she needs to in order to really turn out the numbers in November. So I'm hoping now that uh, we're through the primary and she won so resoundingly that we can now get some different messaging from her. Um, yeah, I, you know, you may or may not know that I supported Elizabeth Warren in the primary um, in 2020 and uh, was one of her surrogates. And one of the things I would, every time I would meet somebody, they would say to me, I really love, I really love Elizabeth, but I just, is she electable? And I would respond, she's electable if you elect her. It's really simple. And so for me, um, Justice Beasley's biggest uh, you know, hurdle is going to be overcoming that question, is she electable? And it's only asked, I will be really frank, it's only asked of non-white male candidates. No one ever tells a white man running, regardless of what party they're running for, that they're not electable. They'll talk about maybe their policies or this or that, but this idea of electability is so specific to non-white male candidates that I even just push back on the notion of it. She is electable because people can vote for her. She's going to be on the ballot. It, it by definition, makes her electable. The question is, are we going to be able to reach the right people and turn them out so that she is elected? Leslie Mack. 
political organizer, rabble-rouser, originally from BK, today a charlatan. Lots happening on the North Carolina political front. Senate leader Phil Berger with a major about-face on Medicaid expansion, a parent's bill of rights filed at the legislature, and the attorney general suffers a mild stroke. Those are among the stories we're likely to discuss when we review the big news of the political week. Ears out for that podcast drop on Friday. I'm Jeff Tabiri. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, hug those little people. Can I do one more thing? That was that was really a bummer. I had see that red button right there? Yeah. I, I didn't hit the red button. Say, come on, Dad. Come on, Dad. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself again? Tell us how old you are. I am four. And what's your name? Amelia. And where do you go to school? At Maracas. What do you learn about at Maracas? Uh, materials. Materials. And what else? What What do you What do you speak at Maracas? Spanish. Spanish. Can you say, "Good morning" in Spanish? Hola. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, bien. Yeah. Uh, uh, muy bien. ¿Y tú? Muy bien. Can you tell us who your teachers are at Maracas? Señora Bertalina y Señora Clau. Oh, Señora Bertalina y Señora Clau. And have you learned about the continents at Maracas? America, the North, America, the Sul, Europa, Asia, Africa, Australia, Antarctica. I love it, man. Thank you for doing it. What's that? Your work.